the good news today of Jesus Christ, uh, known as the gospel, comes from 1 John uh, today, chapter 4. It's one of my favorite uh, chapters in all of the Bible. It's a little hard to find. It's the very back of the Bible, um, right before Revelation. And, and there's, there's just 1, 2, and 3 John there. Um, but I hope that you will receive these words of life to you this morning. Let's share in God's good word. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. From the Bob Barker Studio at CBS in Hollywood, it's The Price is Right. Let's go to whoever that's closest to the actual retail price without going over. Sharon, let's start with you. What do you say? Five seventy-nine. Five seventy-nine. Good luck. Five seventy-nine. Christian. Six fifty. Six fifty. Good luck, Marilyn. Five eighty. Five eighty. Good luck, Ricardo. Six eighty. Six. 680. 680. Okay, good. Everybody's in. Let's see. Uh, actual retail price is $630. Maryland. Maryland. Yeah, come on up here. <laughs> Any of y'all here ever watch Price is Right? Oh, I loved Price is Right as a kid. It was something like if I knew the price of Jiffy peanut butter. Or, and Skippy and Jiff and Peter Pan. And, I mean, I knew, and then there was a vacuum and then a new car. Right? And it was like, wow. And I wanted to be good at placing the value on the things around us. And what I found as I grew up, I, there's something in me that I always want to do that. I want to, I want to place value on things. I want to know what something's worth. I don't want to overpay for something. Do you? No. If I want a good deal, I want to know what, it's, I want to know what the cost is, and then I want to get it for less if I can. I mean, there's something in all of us uh, like that. And, and the thing is, if we're not careful, we'll begin to do that with our relationships as well. And, and we'll, we'll value different things differently. Now, John Maxwell says it like this. He says, we are to love people and use things. Will you say that with me? We are to love people and use things. And as I prepared for the sermon, I, I came across uh, a few questions that uh, really interested me. One is, what is the greatest source of joy in your life? Now, think about that with me. Probably not Skippy peanut butter, right? It has value, but what's the greatest source of joy in your life? I, I think if, if you're like me, the number one answer would be relationships. You, know, you think about your life and you think those moments with your mom or your dad growing up, uh, maybe a grandma or a grandpa holding you, a closeness with a brother or a sister or a vacation time with your family, the mystery of falling in love. The mystery of falling in love or the, the sheer joy of holding your child uh, after bath time when they smell good for those 30 seconds. And you, and you bring that in there. The gift of friendship. That for many of us around here has lasted more than two decades now. On the other hand, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest source of pain in your life? I think the answer is often the same. The greatest source of pain for most people that I talk to that come in and visit with me as pastor is uh, the loss of a relationship, a cancer diagnosis where they know they're 
their friend or their spouse is going to leave them. A wayward child. The sting of betrayal of a friend or a spouse. The rejection of a child who just doesn't want to have anything to do with you these days. Or the fear of an abusive parent. Or These are some of the most painful and wounding tragedies that can happen to our soul. Relationships. There's nothing that matters in all the world like relationships. Isn't that true? There's nothing in all the world. There's nothing like it. We are made for this. We are made for relationships. God says at the very beginning in Genesis, it is not good for humans to be alone. No, we're meant for one another. From the day we are born, we cry out to be held, to be loved, to be nourished, to be fed. And God's love makes for us, makes possible for us, our love for one another. Will you say that with me? God's love for us makes possible our love for one another. Now, we're going to be in a relationship series for the next four weeks. For the month of February, we do this pretty much every year where we talk about relationships because they're so important. But friends, let me, let me be really clear. In the next three weeks, we're going to do all sorts of things that will help you with all kinds of relationships. With your spouse, with your children, with your coworkers, uh, with your bosses, with your friends. We're going to do that work. And we're going to talk about things like communication and self-differentiation. And, and some things that are very, very helpful and necessary for good relationships. But friends, let me be really clear. None of that's going to help you if we don't get this right first. There's not a therapist smart enough. There's not a book deep enough. That can overcome our need for a supernatural power of God for us to be able to love rightly. Because only God loves perfectly. And until we understand and accept God's love for us, that perfect, perfect love of God, we simply won't have it in us. The wounds will be too deep. The hurts will be too harsh. And we'll just get to the end of our rope. We have to have something beyond us in order to live into our relationships rightly, lovingly. And the problem is that we forget what's valuable. Now, doesn't that happen to you in your life sometimes? You, you think something has a value and then, and then it changes. That's the thing I love about Price is Right. That's the thing I hate about Price is Right. You don't watch Price is Right for a few months or a few years. Uh, you know what? Things change in price. That new car that I thought I knew in 1973 is not the same price as it is today. Bob Barker and Drew Carey, they have different price ranges, right? Some of you are like, who's Bob Barker? <laughs> he started it, come on, right? So if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out and kind of come along with me. Um, what is a chair worth? What is the chair that you're sitting in worth? Uh, as a senior pastor of, of, of this church where we've built two buildings and had to fill them with chairs, I know exactly what your chair is worth. And I know what it's worth with a, with a Bible rack and without, right? Uh, but what is this chair worth? If you're me, everything. If you're Chantel, less than nothing. <laughs> it's got my fraternity blanket over it because it's even uglier underneath. An old pillow that goes with nothing because we threw that couch away. But it fits in my lap perfectly. Uh, my, my phone charger's right next to it. And this was my grandfather's chair when I was a little boy. He's the only grandfather I ever had. My other grandfather passed before I was born. Uh, this grandfather uh, lived until I was about 12, 13. And one of my few fond memories uh, of my extended family, we didn't see them often. I would see my grandparents about once a year. I would climb up in that chair in my, in my, with my grandpa, and I would touch his face, and it would be so scratchy. 
he'd have a, Lord, like a half a beard. And I would just love, he loved me. He said I was handsome. <laughs> he and my grandmother were very concerned that with my wrestling and my football, I might do something to this beautiful face. <laughs> you know, you have, it was pretty at the time. <laughs> right? So, so what is a chair worth? What's a home worth? What's your home worth to you? Right? If you want to know what a house is worth, it depends on the size of the house, doesn't it? The age of the house, where it's located. There's a place online. If you want to know what a house is worth, we have lots of realtors in our church. You can ask one of them. Or you can just, if you want to find out exactly what a house is worth, you can just go to Zillow. Right? You just plug in the address and it'll tell you. This house is worth this. That house is worth that. But it doesn't mean it's worth that to you. But you know what? If you plug in um, one address in particular, um, nobody can afford to buy that house. Not in this room, not in any room. Because it's not worth on its size. It's not based on its worth uh, of its condition. It's based on who it belongs to. Right? Anybody know who used to live in that house? George Washington. Yeah, it's Mount Vernon. Right? You go to Zillow, you put in Mount Vernon, there's no price on that. It's priceless. Because of who it belongs to. Because it's his. It's priceless because of who it belongs to. Let that sink in. It's something known as bestowed worth. Say that with me. Bestowed worth. It is valuable because it's valuable because someone says it's valuable. George Washington says it's valuable. Our country says it's valuable. And God says, you're valuable. You belong to me. You're a child of God. You have bestowed worth. And bestowed worth comes as a gift. Right? Mount Vernon can't say, well, I'm going to make George Washington live in me. No. No, it's a gift. It's given. So let me ask you again, what's a human being worth? What is any human being on the planet worth if they are a child of God? What are you worth? What are you worth? God says you're priceless. Every person within the sound of my voice, every person that is here, every person outside, every person, even those people sleeping on Sunday morning. Priceless. Bestowed worth. And Jesus goes on to say, we need to be careful about what we think is valuable. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says it like this. He says, what will profit, what will it profit them to gain the whole world? And forfeit their life. They can win the vacuum and the Jiffy, the Jiff peanut butter and the, and the Skippy and the vacuum and the, and the new car, the whole thing, and lose our life. Some translations say lose our soul. Because the book on us, the reality of our human condition is this. Is that when it comes to us, our love runs out. Isn't that true? No, come on. If you've got two kids under five, you know that's true. Some of the worst um, conversations, fights, disagreements Chantel and I ever had uh, were in the early years of this church. I would leave early in the morning and I would have coffee or lunch or phone calls with anybody I could to try to start a church from nothing. And she had John Mark who was two, two and a half and Noah who was a newborn in 99. Noah was still in her belly at this time in 99, born in April. And I would come home dead tired. You know what it's like to get four, five hundred no's in a day? 
hey, you know, I'm, I'm Pastor Mark, we're going to start a new church, and, and we hope you'd like to be a part of it. And they say, well, where, where is your new church? I say, well, we, haven't, we don't have a building yet. I'm like, well, where's it going to meet? Well, we don't have any land yet. Well, what's it called? Well, we don't really have a name yet. And they said, well, why don't you come back when you know something? No. 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 And I'd come home, and, and I would need some lifting up. Because there was no support system. There was no one around. It was just Chantel and I and a two-year-old and a, an infant. And I, you know, having been beaten down all day long, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, and I would come home and I'd be like, wow, I just can't wait to be back in the arms of the one that I love. And uh, having uh, nursed both our boys, I would go to, to be in the arms of one other. She said, don't you touch me. I'm touched out. I got kids all over me all day. I need to go. You watch the kids. She, she didn't do that. She's better than that. She's better than me. And, and, and I would be worn out. And she would be worn out. And we just felt like, well, we needed something else. Thank God for Jesus. Get you, carries you through those. Because what, say it with me, our love runs out. We need something else beyond us if we're going to be in right relationship with people. Our spouses, our children, our coworkers, our bosses. So what does the Bible say about this? Now, here's what I want you to know. For sure, God calls us what? Beloved. Beloved. Imagine that. That the creator of the universe, the moon, the stars, and the sky calls you his beloved. And John, the youngest of the disciples, um, he says this very clearly. He says, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And, and this isn't some just theory that, that out there. It's not a make-believe story. It's a real place and a real time with real people. John, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he takes Mary and they go to Turkey. Um, to what's Ephesus, now Celtic Turkey. And, and right across the, the street from where our workers live, members of our church live, doing wonderful work over there is St. John's Cathedral, what's left of it, and where John lived in his house. And you can go right to it. It's quite amazing. It, it looks something like this. Yeah. At the end of John's life, he lived at the top of a hill in Ephesus. Down below is the basilica named after him, and his home is right here at the very top of the hill. So he'd wake up in the morning, and he would go down to the basilica, and it's from this place, his home, that he would have written 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and most likely also the Gospel of John. Video credits to my wife, Chantel, on her phone. I mean, friends, this isn't make-believe. You can go to the very place where what we read this morning was written to a certain group of people who were persecuted by the Roman government. They couldn't make sense of this love of another kind that was changing the world. The church was growing so fast in this season from just this tiny 12 to more than half of the population by the time of Constantine in 325. And here's the thing we have to understand, that God loved us before we offered any response. Now around here, because folks are very smart, we often think about, no, 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 it's about you. We value people on what you do. Isn't that true? You value people on what they can do for you. You value about people what they do in an organization or, or in your org chart. They, God says, no, 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 no. Don't fall for that. Your value is because I loved you first. Not for anything you can do for me. 
but because of what I've done for you and Jesus. G.K. Chesterton, um, the great preacher um, in the 18, early 1900s, said this, the great lesson of beauty and the beast, yes, it was around before Disney, is that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. That's the lesson. That's what Jesus came to tell us, that we are loved well before we ever knew we were lovable. It's because we're loved that we know that we're lovable. And again, John is the youngest, uh, and yet he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he does it three times in the Gospel of John. I'm the one that Jesus loved. Now, that's important because in Jesus' context, and it's really opposite world of Edmund, in Jesus' day, to be old was to be revered. The whole culture in Jesus' day was around the oldest people in, in the room because they understood that those folks have wisdom. Those folks know what's going on. That's where you learn is from the elders of the community. Now, in Edmund, what do we, what do we focus on? Kids, right? What did you do yesterday? Right? You're probably at a basketball game or a soccer game or, or, some, or a birthday party or whatever. It's, it's so kid-focused, not so in the Bible. In Bible times, it was the exact opposite. It was all about the old people because that's where wisdom lives. And so it was a big deal for John to say that Jesus loves me because nobody would have believed that. We remember that John may very well have been half the age of Peter. He was just a boy when he gets called. And so John, who knows Jesus really as long as anyone, knows him as well as anyone, he says, look, I'm the one that Jesus loves. And that was something to say that as the youngest of the disciples, to say I'm the one that Jesus loves when everybody else has better standing than me. And God's love for us is the source of our power to love God and one another. Without God's love, we, we simply cannot be the people we need to be for one another. In, in good times and bad. The, the Bible says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Are you all good at that? When, when, when some other kid makes better grades than your kid, when, when your kid gets fourth place, you say, oh, wow, those other three kids were great. They came in before my kid. It, it can be hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. It can also be hard to weep with those who weep. Haven't you ever been in that situation where your friend is really broken and you want to be there, but you're just not sure you can. You're not sure you can handle it because you don't know what to say. There's nothing good to say that the thing that they're going through is something that you don't know how to deal with. And so it's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, particularly if you don't have the love of God in you. If you don't understand, first of all, that you are beloved. And here, here this is get summed up really quickly. Um, and it, I mean, it'll mess with your mind. I want you to think about this. If it's not love, it's not God. Think about that. If it's not love, it's not God. Say that with me. If it's not love, it's not God. Well, how do we know that? Because God is love, period, dot. 1 John 4, 8, that's what it says. Whoever does not love does not know God, comma, read it with me, for God is love. If it's not love, it's not God. Well, then how are we supposed to get people in line? How are we supposed to get people to do what they're supposed to do if we just love them? Well, God's purpose for his disciples wasn't to get other people in line. That's about power and control and authority. It's not love. We have to work on this. You see, in 1 John, he goes on and he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son, right, his only son. It's not like he had lots of sons and just gave one up. No, his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
right? The way we live is because Jesus came into the world. In this love, not that we love God, no, not that, but that he loved us and sent his only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That because Jesus lived and died as resurrected, we now can live. We need to understand that. So the application is this, friends. Since God loved us so much, what are we supposed to do? This is where you answer. Oh, thank you. Love one another. You got it. You got it. Now, now John is going to be way more pointed than I've got time to get into, but, but John's going to say over and over again, if you say you love God and you hate your brother or your sister or your neighbor or the, your coworker, you're not telling the truth. It's not possible. Beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to, say it again with me, love one another. And then he's going to say that it is the only, the only authentication of whether you're a truth teller around this issue. This is it. You want to know the litmus test. You want to know whether you love God. You have to ask yourself the question, how am I at loving others today? That's it. There's no other. It's not how much Bible do I know. It's not how many times do I go to church. It's not how well do I take communion. It's not did I serve in the children's department, although I'll tell you that might get you closer. (laughs) Teasing. How do we love one another? And it's not that love is static. Any of you all have been married a long time like we have. We're 27 years now. Be 28 in August. That is right, right? Okay. Um, You see, we are to mature in love. We are to mature in love. We are to be so in love with God and in the groove with Jesus that we grow in our love. So that when we come to judgment day, when we see Jesus face to face, we're not afraid of that day. We welcome it. We're like, hey, Jesus. He's like, hey, you know this thing we've been working on together? Yeah, how's it going? It's going great. Wonderful. Boom, boom, boom. Because you're in right relationship with Jesus. There's no fear there. There's no worry there because God is love. And when we take up permanent residence in a life of love, John says, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house, the run of your life, becomes at home and mature. What is is it that we're looking for? Mature. We want to be mature in Christ, mature in us, so that we're free of worry on judgment day. You don't have to worry about when you die. I mean, really, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, what you need to understand is you don't need to be worried so much about when you die. You need to be worried about today. How are, how's your love going today? That's what matters. If you love today, you don't have to worry about later. You will have trained your way up in it. You'll be right where Jesus wants you to be. Because you are a child of the king. Oh, sorry. You are a child of the king. You are a citizen of heaven. That's the book on you. Now, so many of you all know uh, that uh, a week ago, Chantel and I uh, went on a, a little trip. We tried to do this uh, in the dark days of winter in Oklahoma, uh, late January, 1st of February. It's good for us, uh, good for our marriage. We recommend time away for spouses. Um, we've been doing this uh, since our 10th anniversary. Um, we don't get there every year, but we, we save up our money, and we, we pay it in advance so we don't have the, oh, no, what are we going to pay for it? We, you know, so we get to actually enjoy the time. Um, and we went to Cuba because we've never been there before. It hadn't been open before, um, and I'm happy to visit with you about that. There's lots there to talk about, of course. Um, but one of the things that was interesting to me is we were on this little ship. wasn't that little, about 1,700 friends, and um, we, uh, we, port, we, we got port at Havana, 
And one of the things that was interesting to me is I always like to be quiet in those big settings and just listen to the nonsense. You ever done that? You, you listen, just listen to the thousands of people just cackling about all kinds of stuff. And you know what a lot of people talked about were Cuban cigars. That's what they were interested in. You, by the way, it's legal now to bring back 100 Cuban cigars back into America. We didn't, but it's legal. I mean that, and so a lot of people, they want to know what is the value of a Cuban cigar and how many can I get and how do I get them back? And that's what, that was their whole thing. And they wanted to know. That was their focus when they were in Havana. And in San Fuego, they want to know about Cuban cigars. That was their whole focus. Other people were really focused on the cars. They could not wait to see the cars that had been fixed and fixed and fixed and fixed and fixed because of the embargo. You couldn't get another car unless you were a government person. And then they weren't getting them from America. So you had all these refurbished classic cars. And people were going nuts about going to see them. But you know where my focus was? Every time I travel out of the country, I have one singular focus. And if I can't get this, if I can't find this, I'm a mess. I'm a complete wreck. I cannot have a good time. I am beside myself because what I'm focused on singularly is this. Where's my passport? Where's my passport? Where's my passport? Where's my passport? Because particularly in places like Cuba, you don't want to be there when the ship has gone and you don't have a passport. Do you? No, you don't. Because you're not sure if you'll ever get back. Now, why am I so focused on my passport? And if you've all ever traveled, you're like, where's my passport? Because with your passport, you'll, you'll notice it says United States of America. And it has our seal on that. Well, what that means is I have the full weight and authority of the United States government and military behind me wherever I go in the world. Isn't that true? I'm a citizen of the United States. And I have power and authority I do not have without it. It takes me places I cannot go without it. It gets me home. You understand? I can have a thousand Cuban cigars, but it's not getting me home. I can have that. And here's the thing. The United States is not my only citizenship, nor is it yours. Because you can have a passport to a new life of love for everyone. You have that power available to you today, but you have to receive it. You have to apply for it, so to speak. You have to say, Jesus, come into my life. You love me first. I understand that. Come on. I want you to be my passport in my life. I want you to take me to new life in places I can't go and with power I don't have. John Ortberg, um, in his sermon on this same passage, uh, says it like this. He says, we have a great worth. We do. He says, but look, this is, this is not just some psychobabble where everybody's great and it's all good. And you know, No, he says, we also have a great problem. And that's true, too. We have great worth. We are God's beloved, but we also have a great problem. The good news is, he says, is that God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And the bad news is your sin, your darkness, your propensity to mess things up, your ego, your selfishness are way worse than you can imagine. Isn't that true? I know that's true in my life. I mean, you, you ask me how I am, I'll tell you, I'm great. I don't want to even remember all the, the times where people said terrible things about me. And it happens to all of us. You know, we, we have a terrible darkness within us and a propensity um, to be super selfish and not think about others. I want you to think about this with me. You and I, we're going to stand before a holy and righteous and sinless and perfect God who cares deeply about every human being. You, of course, but also every other human being that we have ever hurt, ever used, ever resented, 
ever envied. And God will know every thought, every word that we've ever spoken, every thought that we've ever thought, every action that we've ever engaged in. And how could we possibly, how could we possibly stand before a holy God like that? Well, thank God for the scripture this morning that this is love. Not that we love God, not that we did it perfectly, not that we even did it all that well, but what? That he loved us. This is love. Say it with me. This is love that God loved us and sent his only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's about what's been done for us. If you want to know the worth of a human being, go to the cross. Jesus says, you are priceless. You're worth my very life. You're worth everything to me. And if you've never received this incredible gift of love, you can do that now. You can do that today. We're so thrilled that Sally's going to come and, and make that official in her life in just a few minutes. To come in and love as Christ has loved you. John says it this way. He says, we are to love not in words, but in truth and what? Action. People may not believe what you say, but they will believe what you do. Isn't that true? They believe what you do. So in the previous chapter, John says this. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. In action. And what I want us to remember is that when it comes to love, we can't. But God can. God living in us can. It takes a love of another kind beyond our limits, beyond us, beyond us. We are in the beginning of February. Uh, It's an appropriate time to share this story. And I was arrested by the faith and the power of the mother of Emmett Till in this story. Many of you all uh, know Emmett Till's story. He was 14. While visiting a family in Money, Mississippi, he was 14 years old. Uh, He was an African-American child uh, from Chicago. And he was brutally murdered in Mississippi for allegedly flirting with a white woman uh, four days previously. His assailants, the white woman's husband and her brother, made Emmett carry a 75-pound cotton gin, uh, the fan of that cotton gin, to the bank of the Tallahatchie River. And then they ordered him to take off all his clothes, And the two men then proceeded to beat him nearly to death. And they gouged out one of his eyes. Then they shot him in the head. And then they threw his body, tied to the cotton gin fan, with barbed wire into the river. I mean, where we live in can be absolutely terrifying. On August 24th, While standing with his cousins and some friends outside a country store in money, Emmett bragged that his girlfriend back home was white. And Emmett's African-American companions disbelieved him and dared Emmett to ask the white woman sitting behind the counter for a date. Nobody really knows whether he did or didn't or what exactly happened. What we do think we know is that he went in, he bought some candy, and on the way out, he was heard as simply saying, Bye, baby, to the woman as he walked out, 14-year-old boy. Now, there were no witnesses in the store, but Carolyn Bryant, the woman behind the counter, later, later claimed to her husband that Emmett had grabbed her, made lewd advances towards her, and wolf-whistled at her as he sauntered out. So when her husband comes home, Roy Bryant, he comes home from a business trip a few days later, and heard how Emmett had allegedly spoken to his wife, he was enraged. He went to the home of Till's great-uncle, Mose Wright, 
with his brother-in-law, J.W. Millam, in the early morning hours of August 28th, four days later. The pair demanded to see the boy. Despite pleas from Wright, they forced Emmett into their car, and after driving around in the Memphis night and perhaps beating Till in a tool house behind Millam's residence, they drove him down to the Tallahatchie River. And three days later, his corpse was recovered, but was so disfigured that his uncle, Mr. Wright, could only identify it by an initial ring on his hand. Authorities wanted to bury the body quickly, of course, but Till's mother, Mamie Bradley, requested that it would be sent back to Chicago. And after seeing the mutilated remains, she decided to have an open casket funeral so that all the world could see what racist murderers had done to her only son. Now, Jet, an African-American weekly magazine, published a photo of Emmett's corpse, and soon the mainstream media picked up the story. And less than two weeks after Emmett's body was buried, Millam and Bryant went on trial in the segregated courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi. And on September 23rd, less than a month, the all-white jury deliberated for less than an hour before issuing a verdict of not guilty, explaining that they believed the state had failed to prove the identity of the body. And then the story, in some ways, just disappears for a little bit. But in 2017, Tim Tyson, the author of The Blood of Emmett Till, that book, revealed that Carolyn Bryant, the only witness to what happened, recanted her testimony. Adding that Till had never touched her, never threatened her, never harassed her. This is her quote. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him, she said. Now, Mamie Mobley, the mother of Emmett Till, was asked in an interview, if she harbored bitterness towards the two white men, or to, towards whites in general, for the brutal murder of her son. I want you to hear what she said. She said, it would be unnatural not to hate them. Yet, I'd have to say, I'm unnatural. The Lord gave me shield. I don't know how to describe it myself. I do not wish them dead. I do not wish them in jail. And then she said this. If I had to, I could take their four little children, they each had two, and could raise those children as if they were my own. And I could have loved them. Loved them, she said. I believe the Lord meant what he said, and I try to live according to the way I've been taught. That's love. That is love. That's love of a different kind. After our love runs out. How do we learn to live into that kind of a different love? Well, not overnight. It takes training. So our action steps are this. First of all, and this is where it all starts. Tell yourself, I am the one whom Jesus loves. I'm beloved. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm a citizen of Oklahoma and the United States, sure, but I'm a citizen of God, of, of God's heaven. 
And then because that's true, because you are loved, you have the power to love another. You really do. So do it. Do it. Live in that power that is beyond you. And then the most loving thing you can do for someone is introduce them to love itself, Jesus, perfectly. So in the next three weeks, it's a great time to invite a friend to church. This week, say, hey, we're in a relationship series. I know that God loves me, God loves you, and, and I'd love to be a better friend to you. I'd love for us to learn how to do this better. So I hope you will as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we mature in our love together. Will you pray with me this closing prayer? God, thank you for your love that is here right now. Let it heal wounds and melt hearts. Lord, thank you for loving each and every one of us. We turn our relationships over to you. Please empower us through your Holy Spirit to love the way you love. Make your love the top priority in our lives, and may we help one another through your power to make that so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are enough, that you are a power of a different kind, a love of a different kind, a love that changes the world, that transforms the world, and let it begin again with us this day. Fill us, mold us, make us. Let us understand that we who confess our sin, that you are faithful, you are just, and you have the ability to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to mature us in your love. And we ask that you would. And we begin again today by praying the prayer you taught us by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.